You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to think about what it means to be public. What does it mean to be the church in public? What is it for the church to be seen, to be visible, to appear against the horizon of public life, of the body politic, of society? If Jesus calls into existence something called a church, what does that church look like in the world? In our reading from St. Matthew's Gospel this morning, at the very, near the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses several images to describe what the community of disciples gathered around him is like. One of them is an image that has gained considerable currency in our public life, a city on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hid, Jesus says. The image has a long history in American public life. In 1630, the Puritan leader, John Winthrop, preached one of the most famous sermons in American history, a model of Christian charity, while still on board the ship that would bring a new community of Puritans to found the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The settlement, Winthrop declared, would be built as a shining city upon a hill, an example of Christian civilization for all the world to see. Later on, the phrase would become a staple of American political discourse. In 1961, shortly before his inauguration, President-elect John F. Kennedy quoted Winthrop's sermon, and he exhorted the American people to once again take up the call to rebuild that shining city upon a hill, which was by now not simply the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but the American nation. JFK's call led to a series of additional exhortations by American political leaders in the following decades to recover the nation's divine commission and make America a city on a hill again. Reagan, Bush, Obama, Romney, Cruz are just a few of the numerous political figures on both the left and the right to adopt the phrase. Just last week, even, the phrase came alive again, but with a dark twist. Even a shining city upon a hill, pronounced a U.S. senator, needs walls. So today, the language of a city upon a hill is so widespread, we hardly think of it as anything more than some kind of empty cliché in political debates and the pronouncements of statesmen. The city upon a hill has become only a kind of trite, pseudo-religious image that legitimates our national self-interest. Now, 
you would probably want to speak with one of our many scholars of American religious history here, even at Christchurch, before taking my word for it. But I think one way of reading the story of American history, and at least the rise of American exceptionalism, is as a story of a kind of migration of phrases like city on a hill from the church to the nation. A migration of the holy, as Bill Kavanaugh puts it, wherein the church becomes increasingly privatized, Christianity progressively more depoliticized, and the nation state ever more sacralized. Now, believe it or not, I actually don't want to spend this morning lamenting the state of our national politics. There are plenty of folks, most of them more blustery and entertaining than me, ready to do just that. Rather, I want just to wonder, why is it that the first image that many folks in America have today when they think of a phrase like, city on a hill, is not a steeple, not a preacher from Nazareth on a mountainside, but a flag. Is it perhaps because the church has failed in some way, failed to be public, failed to be visible, A city on a hill cannot be hid, Jesus says. Or can it? I mean, there we have it, from its very inception at the feet of Jesus, the church is supposed to be emphatically public and social and visible. Christianity, at least if you're going to do it Jesus' way, is not fundamentally a kind of philosophical position an idea or a set of beliefs, it's a form of life, a praxis, a society, a community of discipleship, a polity, a city whose center is Christ himself. What Jesus calls into existence in our gospel reading today is a visible social body, a city, a civitas, gathered on the earth and on pilgrimage to the eternal city of God. To be the church is to be public. That's why Bonhoeffer wrote, to flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. So, given that the church is fundamentally public, that is, you don't really get to decide whether or not you are public, only if you want to be publicly faithful or a kind of public sham. Well, given that publicness, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about these other two images that Jesus gives us to think about the meaning of our public witness, salt and light. Think of these as controlling images for what it means for the church to be public. 
And let us consider what kind of public life Jesus has called his church to. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. We would do well, I think, to attend to the grammar of Jesus' statement. You are the salt of the earth. Not you ought to be. Not you could be, or should be, or even go and be the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. This might be the most significant part of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. If you begin on your own initiative, if you try to construct a way of life on your own, if you attempt to go on mission on your own authority, you've already missed the point. Christians are, by the simple fact that they are with Jesus, the salt of the earth. Jesus does not so much go around calling his disciples to be something they are not, but to live into what he has already made them. Become what you are what God has made you to be. God made you salt, so be salt. And what a gift it is to be salt. What a grace to be of use to the world, to live for the world, to be a blessing to the nations. It's the beautiful thing about salt, is it not salt? is literally of no value unless it's put in something. It exists wholly for the service of something else. Salt preserves. It flavors. It purifies. It seasons. It cleanses. It was essential to the lives of Jesus' listeners because salt in so many ways gave life. Salt gives life. The church is salt, witness to the life-giving Christ in what John Paul II famously called that culture of death. We exist in the world as witnesses to a life-giving gospel that stands opposed to death and all its forces. Where the life that God gives is threatened, the salt of the earth defends it. It preserves it. It protects it, and it nurtures it. A salty church exists not for herself, but for the life of the world. Its publicness is to permeate that world in order to build up its life, to seek the welfare of its people, to work for its common good. I don't know about you, but I often hear folks quote the verse, be in the world but not of the world, as a kind of pretext for withdrawal 
as if the command to be marked as different from the world meant a kind of separation. But it's precisely the difference that constitutes the church that demands that we get in the world. Don't forget the first part of the verse. Be in the world. Salt that is an inch away from food is of no use. It has to get in it. Now, it's precisely because of how deeply Jesus calls his disciples to be embedded in the world that he then goes on to give the crucial warning. Stay salty. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. Jesus acknowledges the countless pressures that exist outside and inside the church to make her less salty, to absorb and exhaust her life-giving witness, to suppress her difference, to make her go private. And so Jesus introduces a second image for the church's public life. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So if the image of salt captured the profound extent to which the church is to be in and for the world, a blessing of life to all the, to all the nations— if it names this kind of inward movement into the world, then the image of light captures the second movement, the profound contrast the church's life is to be to the darkness of the world, to the culture of death. You are the light of the world. Claiming to be the light of the world would be profoundly arrogant at best and heretical at worst if such a claim was not found first on the lips of Jesus. Is not Jesus himself the light of the nations as he is already claimed in Matthew's gospel? So who do we think we are? But this is precisely the point of Jesus' teaching. The church which shares in the light of Christ, who is joined to him and welcomed into his life, is as the moon reflecting the eternal light of God. This light is not our own, but we bear it as God's gift for the world The light shines in the darkness, St. John wrote of the incarnate word, and the church shares in this life as Christ orders her life to be a light to the nations. This is, of course, the whole point of Jesus' teaching. The church is not a light for herself, but for the world. A lamp is not put under a bushel, but on a stand. Its luminosity is a gift 
to a house that's blanketed in darkness. It was the Jewish sect at Qumran, if you remember, who in Jesus' day referred to themselves as the sons of light that withdrew from the world and refused to make its light public. But Jesus calls his disciples to make light radiate into the darkest corners of the earth. And so Jesus calls his church to the form of life pictured in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in order to witness to a new possibility of life together. What is put on display for the world, what constitutes the light that shines in the darkness, is Christian action, the church's life, her public life, all of which is made possible only by the Holy Spirit. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works. Not a kind of different way of saying be nice, right? The word good here, kala, means a kind of beauty, right? Attraction. The church that's gathered around Jesus and giving public expression to his teachings makes beautiful a sociality, a beautiful city, a form of life that witnesses to God's kingdom and calls God's children out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So I hope that you know that that is what we're up to here at Christ Church. If you thought that we are only interested in putting on nice liturgies on Sunday mornings, you're going to be a bit disappointed, though I think we do a pretty good job. We're far more ambitious than that. This church is an attempt to build up a public community of discipleship, founded in worship, in prayer, and in sacrament that witnesses to a different way of living on this earth. Because there is a multitude of Wacoans out there that are wondering, many of them desperately so, because their lives depend on it, whether there is some alternative to a culture of death in which they suffer its collateral damage. They want to believe that there's another way of living life. So, we're going to have to be thinking carefully and imagining together about what it means to build up that kind of life right now. What kinds of pressures and resistance might arise in opposition to it? What practical obstacles and opportunities lie ahead? But it's clear that Jesus has called us to be public, to be salt and light to stand in the midst of the world proclaiming and embodying the evangelium vitae the gospel of life so with the poor with the oppressed for the unborn with the refugee with the sojourner 
with the vulnerable and with the least of these, wherein we find the very face of Christ, we stand in public solidarity. We cherish their lives because Christ cherishes their life. And we boldly confess his gospel of life. The good news of him who is the light and who gives his life for the life of the world. So this morning, we receive that light and life at this holy table here. And then we bear it. We bear that light and life into the world in public faith, in public hope, and in public love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.